please turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. This morning we're going to consider being subject one to another. Subject one to another. We're going to consider the relationship that exists, or at least ought to exist, between Christians. And our passage of scripture is 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're going to look at verse 5 through to verse 7. We'll do that now. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. We, we actually looked at that last time, last week. Um, today's consideration is as follows. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. The relationship between Christians is one whereby they are to be in subjection one to another. We've already seen quite a lot on the subject of subjection in this epistle Let me remind you, in chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, the Apostle Peter gave an exhortation to submit to the civil authorities and their representatives in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are to God, that are God's rather. Also, whilst the Bible declares slave trading to be a sin and does not promote it, it nevertheless recognises that slavery is a reality in this fallen world and it gives instructions in chapter 2 and verse 18 to Christian slaves to be subject to their masters, even the nasty ones who treat them shamefully. They're, They're to be in subjection to them. The example to follow is the Lord Jesus Christ, who when he was reviled or insulted, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to his Father. Then in chapter 3 and verse 1, there is an exhortation to Christian wives to submit to their husbands, regardless of whether those husbands are themselves Christians or not. The wives are to submit to their husbands. We live in a world where many people dismiss marriage as an irrelevance or else they give their approval to same-sex marriages which are nothing less than a sinful perversion of what God instituted at the beginning. In other words, when a man, God said that a man and a woman cleave shall cleave together and become one flesh. A man and a woman cleaving together in marriage. In a world where the whole idea of a wife being in subjection to her husband is frowned upon and where husbands and wives are now referred to as partners, it is nevertheless clearly taught in scripture that wives are to submit to their husbands 
as unto the Lord Jesus Christ, with husbands loving their wives with a sacrificial love. The marriage relationship ought to reflect the relationship that exists between Jesus and his church, one whereby the church is the bride of Christ and is in subjection to him. And Jesus loves his church with a sacrificial love, as was clearly seen at the cross. Last time we looked at this epistle, we considered chapter 5, verses 1 through to 4, which is about the responsibilities of church elders. Elders are accountable to the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, to feed the flock of God, to oversee the churches, but not to lord it over them. Also, as can be seen in the first part of verse 5 of chapter 5, it is written, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Peter was calling on younger men to be subject to their elders and their pastors who are mature in the Christian faith. That is very much in line with Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17, where it is written, Obey them that have the rule over you, that is the elders, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that they that must give an account, that, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Coming back to chapter 5 and verse 5, the verse continues with an exhortation for all Christians to submit or to be in subjection to one another. And that exhortation would, of course, extend to church elders as well. And I'm aware that not all of the Bible versions actually have that um, that piece in verse 5 about all of us Christians being in subjection to one another. But this is what we have, and this is what we're going to consider briefly. Submission of Christians one to another is practical Christianity and it is evidence that all of the airs and graces, the self-importance that people of the world cling to and cherish so much have been stripped away. And so it should be if you are someone who belongs to the King of Glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came into this world as a lowly servant even though he is the eternal son of God. As a Christian, you, you you have no business being full of yourself, do you? When you think of Jesus. As it is written in Matthew chapter 20, verse 25 through to 28. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them and they that are great exercise authority upon them but it shall not be so among you but whosoever will be great among you let him be your minister or your servant and whosoever will be chief among you let him be your servant even as the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. A church fellowship is a place where rich people may find themselves in subjection to the poor, 
and where those with considerable Bible knowledge may receive Bible teaching from the not-so-knowledgeable, where the members may be required to submit to an elder who is fresh out of seminary, Bible school, or else young enough to be their son. None of those things come easy for proud people, but Christians are different. They left their pride behind at the foot of the cross when they received Jesus as their saviour from their sins. Far from being proud and haughty, Christians are, or at least they ought to be, clothed with humility, according to verse 5. Let's have a look at that again. Likewise, ye younger, subject, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. To be clothed with humility has been described as follows. This was the white scarf or apron of slaves, which was fastened to the belt of the vest and distinguished slaves from the free men. Therefore, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5, gird yourselves with humility as your servile garb encourages Christians to show their subjection one to another by putting on humility. This could also refer to the overalls which slaves wore to keep clean while working, an exceedingly humble garment. Straight away, that explanation for being clothed with humility reminds me of none other than the incarnate Son of God who on the night before he was crucified he laid aside his garments he tied a towel around his waist he washed the feet of his disciples and then he dried those feet with the towel that was wrapped around his waist This is the Son of God, no less, who did those things. That show of pure and unadulterated humility from the Creator God, who washed the dirty feet of his creatures, is something we all do well to consider and meditate upon as we pray most earnestly in his name that the Holy Spirit would continue to work in us and to humble our hearts. But surely what what must rank as the greatest manifestation of humility ever is the incarnate Son of God being nailed to a wooden cross as he carried away the sins of all who trust in him. Such people are being exhorted by Peter to be clothed with humility. Realistically, The only way for any of us to be clothed with genuine humility is to be clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, having believed that he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That is where humility starts, believing in Jesus who humbled himself and became obedient even unto the death of the cross. From then on, it is a case of keeping focused on the humility of Jesus, who was wounded for your transgression and bruised for your iniquity when he paid the debt of your sin at the cross. 
Last of all, in verse 5, Peter said, For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Peter was quoting Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 34, and he was also quoting, well, or rather, James said the same thing in James chapter 4 and verse 6. If the humble are all who have prostrated themselves as wretched sinners before the throne of God's grace in prayer, and they have received Jesus as their Saviour and their Lord, then surely the proud refers to everyone else. They see no need for repentance, nor the righteousness of God, which is by faith in Jesus. God gives his grace not to them, but to the humble, to believers in Jesus. It is a grace that saves them from their sins, it keeps them from falling, and it is a grace that will take them home to heavenly glory to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got the humble, you've got the proud. The humble are the ones who have prostrated themselves before the throne of God, believing in Jesus. The proud are the rest. Let's have a look at verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. When you think of the mighty hand of God, you can think of his creative power. For example, concerning the Son of God, in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 10, it is written, Thou, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. And you've actually got that picture of Jesus the heavens, the work of his hands, the, 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 the creator's hands, spreading the foundations of the earth, making everything that was made. And we see that in John chapter 1. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. Referring to Jesus. But also the mighty hand of God, as it applies here, refers to the sufferings, and the fiery trials that the Lord lays upon his elect. They are to bear those God-given trials with humility, and in due time they will be exalted by God when they shall enter into their eternal rest. You probably know something about that, don't you, Christian? The fiery trials, God-given trials, we've looked at that already. And you look to that day when you go to be with Jesus. But you know what, dear Christian, even if you never seem to be free from suffering in this present world, God has nevertheless already exalted you in that he has already brought you up out of the horrible pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. He has forgiven you all of your iniquities. He has set your feet upon the rock whose name is Jesus. Amen to that, yeah. As we have already seen in this epistle, you already are a living stone in a spiritual building whose foundation and chief cornerstone is 
Jesus, you already are a royal priest of the Most High God through faith, through faith in the great heavenly high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. When you think about all of those glorious truths, why would you even think to exalt yourself? Leave all of that nonsense to those who are perishing, having rejected Jesus and his glorious gospel. They are self-righteous and proud people who vainly imagine that they have no need of forgiveness. Dear Christian, you are to cast all your care upon God, for he careth for you. That's in verse 7. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. The care that you are to cast upon God is different to the care that he has for you. It comes from a different Greek word and it means anxieties. You are to cast your anxieties upon God. To be anxious, to be anxious means to be drawn in different directions and I'm sure I'm not the only one to have experienced anxieties where I feel as if I'm being drawn in different directions and being pulled apart. Quite simply, to be anxious is to worry. We don't like to talk about that as Christians, do we? And some people will jump down our throat and remind us, tell us that it's sinful to worry if you're Christian, and and so on and so on and so on. You are to cast all of your anxieties all of your worries where you feel as if you are being pulled apart on the Lord. Bearing in mind that it is the Lord who lays the fiery trials upon his elect, I find what Spurgeon said to be very helpful. Spurgeon said, Thy burden, or what thy God lays upon thee, lay thou it upon the Lord. His wisdom casts it on thee, It is thy wisdom to cast it on him. He cast thy lot for thee, cast thy lot on him. He gives thee thy portion of suffering, accept it with cheerful resignation and then take it back to him by thine assured confidence. And precisely how are we to cast our cares, our anxieties, our worries upon the Lord? The the Apostle Paul gave the answer to that one in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6 when he said, Be careful, in other words, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. There you have it, the answer is prayer. Commit your cares, your anxieties to the Lord in prayer. The hymn writer understood that very well. He said, are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Saviour, still our refuge, take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee, take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. As we come to a close, let's face it. We all face various cares or anxieties to varying degrees. 
and some can drive us to despair, even seriously affecting our sleep, impacting on our physical and mental health. It's hardly surprising when you appreciate that we live in sinful bodies in a sinful world. Of necessity, the first burden that you are to commit to God in prayer is the burden of your sin. That must come first. We have considered humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God in verse 6 and God caring for us in verse 7 and that is precisely what happened to King David when he was under deep conviction of sin. David knew a thing thing or two about anxiety. Concerning his sin, he said to the Lord in prayer, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. He was suffering physically and he was suffering mentally because of sin. But then David confessed his sin to the Lord. He was forgiven and the anxiety departed and was replaced with a wonderful assurance of the presence and the comfort of God. He declared, David declared, you are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Dear Christian, if you have anxieties that weigh you down and drive you to despair, and that most certainly includes your sin, you are to commit them to God. Who cares for you? I think God demonstrated that very clearly at the cross, didn't he? How much he cares for you. Even David, who was a man of God, committed his burden of sin to the Lord as a top priority. And so must all of us. Confess your sin and God is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. However, if you are someone who has not yet received the Son of God as your Saviour from sin... You cannot expect God to take your anxieties upon him and you cannot expect him to care for you. That would be ridiculous. The fact of the matter is that if you have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, the wrath of God abideth on you. I therefore urge you to cry out to God for mercy believing that his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, carried the burden of your sin upon himself at the cross, having fulfilled the law's demands on your behalf. Amen.